in the name of the crucified Christ. Amen. There's a question some ask about Jesus. Was he mad? Or was he bad? Or was he God? Those really are the options. Mad? Ask yourself, does a carpenter from Galilee seem the likely choice for the only begotten Son of God? Plus, he talked to God as if God was his father, his loving father going so far as to call him Papa and telling us to do the same. Bad? Well, Jesus invited people to join him in ministry, and nearly all of his first disciples were killed not long after he was. In addition to which, he healed, fed, and forgave people great for them. But people are still hungry, still sick, still sinful. God? There is the testimony of billions of his followers who assert that their lives are immeasurably richer, stronger, and more free than they would be without Jesus, even if those descriptors often remain invisible to the naked eye. Those believers also claim to know a peace which the world cannot give. If you are here today, whether online or here in the church, my guess is that you either count yourself or would like to count yourself as a disciple among those who believe Jesus is God, or that you are at least open to the possibility. And for going on 2,000 years, disciples have seen this day as the fulcrum, the pivot point for understanding Jesus as the very Son of God, the church calls this day Good Friday for that reason. But everyone is welcome today, and in this gospel, everyone is also present and accounted for. There are disciples. Two stand out immediately. The first is Judas. We know him as the betrayer, and on that shadowed Raridos behind me with its carving of the Last Supper. He is not even there. His seat is, but he is gone, long gone. But he was there at that last meal and all through Jesus' three-year ministry. He's the official villain, but no one thought that at all before that night. When Jesus announced that one of the disciples would betray him, every single disciple asked, is it me? Because every single disciple knew it could be. When Judas emerges from the shadows with the police, 
at his back. Jesus isn't surprised, nor does he seem angry. Someone was going to do it. It just turned out to be Judas. But Jesus is upset with another disciple, with Peter. Peter, who always leaps before he looks and always speaks before he thinks. But this time, Peter has come armed and his impetuousness costs a slave, a slave of all people, an ear. Jesus is upset, but not surprised. Put the sword back in its sheath. But honestly, who doesn't want to be the one who somehow at just the right moment says just the right thing, turns the tide and wins the battle? But Peter's leap creates collateral damage. Then it gets worse. Arrested and hauled before the religious authorities, Jesus tells the high priest that he has hidden nothing and has always spoken openly. While Peter hides in the shadows and denies ever having met Jesus. Heroism was his dream. Peter's reality is quite the opposite. He's not alone in that, I think. I suspect both Peter and Judas had concluded Jesus was perhaps mad, at least a little bit. Both apparently wanted a Messiah who would demonstrate power the way the world expects it to be demonstrated. Judas became disillusioned earlier, perhaps, but Peter must have been shocked when Jesus scolded him in the garden and refused to strike down the soldiers then and there or ever. Of course, their disappointment in Jesus was soon overwhelmed by their distress with themselves. Reports came that Judas hung himself, and we know from other accounts that Peter wept bitterly as he scurried away from the courtyard. There was, however, a large contingent who just thought Jesus was bad. Bad because he could not, would not, accept the way the world works, respect authority, or abide by the rules. Pilots in that bunch, along with Annas, Caiaphas, and the soldiers who draped Jesus in a tattered robe, added a crown of plated thorns and mocked him. The Pharisees, those students of the law, they'd marked him as bad from the get-go. No doubt there were plenty more. Those who came to see the execution, to make sure this troublemaker was well and truly disposed of. They've always been there, at witch hunts and lynchings and any public political execution. We like to make distinctions, though. Surely Pilate's not in the same league as the religious authorities who cooked up the charges. Or is he? 
He could have stopped the execution. In fact, he's the only one who could have stopped the execution. But doing that, he'd find his own neck slipping into Rome's noose, and he couldn't have that. Besides, Jesus defied him, refusing to recognize his power. Jesus made the religious authorities feel threatened. He made Pilate feel the same. We get it. We get it. When we build the institutions or serve them, don't we want them preserved? along with our good name? Only someone bad or mad or both talks about a kingdom only he can see and scoffs at the kingdoms that hold his life in their hands. Did anyone think he was God? Five, perhaps. Five. They, too, were disciples. Mary Magdalene, John, the disciple Jesus loved, Jesus' own mother and his aunt, and still another Mary. They were there and held two things in common. First, they loved Jesus. Mary, his mother from before he was born, singing of the blessing he was and would be in her Magnificat. Maybe her sister was there having caught the melody. That beloved disciple, one of the first disciples called, who always stayed close, close now as Jesus dies. And Mary, Mary Magdalene, a woman Jesus healed, who then joined the disciples and the other Mary, Married to Clopas, but committed to Jesus, she'd helped fund his ministry. All five loved Jesus and also had come to know the reality of that kingdom that Pilate and the priests couldn't even imagine. In those five, Jesus saw the beginnings of a community built not on kinship or power, but from love. What makes us believe he is God? And if we don't, what might make us believe that? We're told that having loved his own, he loved them to the end, but who were his own? Surely those five, that makes sense. We understand that. We might choose death to save our beloved child. Some choose to die to save a fellow soldier. Some will even die for a righteous cause. But Jesus said, for this I came into the world. For this, all of it, all of this. And so for all of them, for Peter and for Judas, for Pilate, and Caiaphas, and all the mocking soldiers, for the crowd watching his crucifixion, whether bored or transfixed, maybe even for us. For late at night, or brooding before the sun comes up, 
we recognize our own betrayals and the idols we worship as we build and serve and seek to shore them up. We know too just how often we merely stand and watch the horrors of this world. Who would die for the likes of them? Who would die for the likes of us? Jesus would. Jesus did. For this I came into the world, he said. For this. Until it was finished. All his own. Not one cast away. But what of judgment? Shouldn't there be judgment? Lest, as one theologian says, we conclude absurdly that nothing much is wrong, or blasphemously that God doesn't mind very much. So much is wrong. The world testifies to that daily, and of course God cares. Otherwise, why overturn the tables in the temple? Why heal lepers or feed multitudes? Is there no judgment upon those upon us who have treated Jesus so? Is there no judgment when we stand alongside Peter, alternately arrogant or scared to death, or next to Pilate, trapped by position and pride? Yes, there is judgment. It is shown us on the cross. The cross is the judgment upon sin. But in Jesus, it comes on a flood tide of love, meted out by the one who stretched out his arms upon the cross, that everyone might come within reach of his saving embrace. Everyone, no exceptions. Maybe Jesus was mad as the world judges sanity. Maybe he was bad as the powers that be define it. But surely Jesus is God. Surely God.